Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls. That was just as loud as I wanted it to be. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Movie House. Merry Christmas, Emporium. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building and loan. Hey, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. Isn't it wonderful? I'm going to jail. These are the screams of the restored George Bailey from the 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. You might know the story. George re-enters his downtrodden town, elated to see all the people and places he's familiar with. He's elated to see them because he sees them all with fresh eyes. See, George previously was dejected, hopeless, and thought his life was a waste. He thought this even to the point where he contemplated suicide. But with the help of Clarence the angel, George got a renewed perspective that gave him joy and gratitude for all that he had already had. So far in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been someone like Clarence the angel from It's a Wonderful Life. And the Corinthians have been somewhat like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. Now, the Corinthians weren't so much discouraged and despondent as they were discontent. They left behind the gospel for the elusive and fading accolades of the world. Paul wants to renew their perspective, give them fresh eyes to see what they're familiar with, but the riches of what they already have in Christ. This is what he continues to do as we head into the closing part of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So turn there with me if you haven't yet. You'll find it printed also in your bulletin. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is God's word. What's Paul's main goal in this passage? What's the main truth or even the main command that he wants them to see or to do? I want you to see, just before we even dive in, that the centerpiece of this paragraph here is verse 21, specifically the very first sentence of verse 21. Notice how that verse begins with the word so. So let no one boast in men. That word so points to what comes before it. So it's as if Paul's saying, in light of all that I've just said, don't boast in men. And then notice how the next sentence of verse 21 goes, how it starts. It says, for all things are yours. That for is like the word because. They shouldn't boast in men because all things are yours. So you see, 
In light of all that I've said, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men because all things are yours. So we have two main arguments for why they should not boast in men. Boasting in men, not doing that, is the centerpiece of this passage. Now, it's going to be helpful, so don't boast in men. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from, if you keep in mind, what we've covered so far in 1 Corinthians. Remember what was going on in this church. This was a church divided over loyalties to certain teachers and personalities within them. This church was unique in that it had exposure to multiple ministers. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, it's another name for Peter. This created a situation where different people in the church had connections with different prominent ministers. Now, instead of being grateful for this gift, the Corinthians turned their relationships with different ministers into power plays. One group in the church should have prominence over another because of their connection with a superior teacher. This was their selfish, worldly, competitive mindset. So far in chapter 3, this is what we've, what we've been through so far, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, Paul told them by, that by acting this way, they were acting like non-Christians. In verses 5 to 9, uh, he said, Paul says that acting this way created jealousy and strife among them, which led to these pointless divisions. And he talked about the leaders over which they divided, saying that they thought too highly of them anyway. That the leaders and the teachers weren't the point. God is the point. God is the one who gives the growth. Jesus is the one that they proclaim, not some teacher. Last week in verses 10 to 17, we saw Paul again redirecting their attention and reorienting what they valued, even about teachers. It says the main pursuit that teachers should care about is not about promoting themselves, but about being faithful to the foundation of Christ so that they don't lead people astray in light of eternity. If they, Paul warns them if, that they, if they continued in the jealousy and pursuit of worldly approval, that they were at risk of losing the very characteristic that, this, that should define them as God's church. So that was their holiness, that they were set apart from the world. They were beginning to blend back into the rest of the world that they were saved from. In the paragraph now in front of us today, verses 18 to 23, Paul brings kind of his whole presentation to a head. He tells them straightforwardly, stop boasting in people. It won't get you anywhere, and it robs you of all that you've been given. We can sum up his main reasoning for this command like this. It's printed in your bulletin. The world can't give you what God has already given us in Christ. The world can't give you what God has already given us in Christ. This reasoning is applied over and over again throughout the New Testament, throughout all the Bible. Basically, God is better than sin. <laughs> so the steps toward healing this church Healing the church in Corinth that was discontented, that was distracted, that was disenchanted to the gospel and caught up in seeking its own interests. The steps toward healing that church is similar toward, to healing and leaving behind any sin in general. And that's realizing the emptiness of what you're pursuing and recognizing the fullness of Christ. 
You realize the emptiness of what you're pursuing and recognize the fullness of Christ. The same steps here for the Corinthians. So remember, we said that the centerpiece command for the Corinthians was to stop boasting in people. Why? Why should they stop? Two big reasons. First is the world and the people in it aren't all that it's cracked up to be. (laughs) And second, God's grace in Christ is so much better than they thought it was. So first point, the truth about the world and the people in it. The first reason that they shouldn't boast in people is that the world is not what it's cracked up to be. Now, don't hear me saying, let's caveat and nuance this a little bit. There are a ton of good, amazing gifts in this world. And those gifts reflect God's kindness, often God's beauty. But what we're talking about here, that as far as values go, as far as ways of life that the world sets up, as far as that goes, the world is a very lousy thing to live for. The world is a very lousy thing to give your life to. We might know that, but we still fall for it. So the first step toward healing for the Corinthian church was to see that what they went after, what they were going after, wasn't all that great. It wasn't as great as they thought it was. So let's notice this. We're looking here at verses 18 to 20, mainly. Verse 18, we see a command. Paul tells them to leave behind what they were going after. That is the world's wisdom. Verses 19 to 20, we see the basis for that command. He tells them why they shouldn't go after the world. That is, it's not what they think it is. It's not as all, all that it's cracked up to be. So we'll notice the parts that make up, of, make up both all these verses. So first notice in verse 18, the command here. Paul, what Paul wants them to do, leave behind what they were going after. So notice how he presents this. It's very, very careful, very deliberate. He starts by saying, let no one deceive himself. If we're going to put it in our language, Paul could say, don't kid yourself, guys. Stop it. The Corinthians had the same problem as all of us do, all of humanity. They have the problem of arrogant ignorance. Arrogant ignorance. We see this problem pop up throughout the Bible. But you see it especially in the book of Proverbs. Over and over again, the book of Proverbs indicts the person who is wise in his own eyes. Famously, Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, and its end is death. Same is true today. We see that same truth fleshed out today. You know, we're at the point where the individual gets to decide what is true. Where the individual decides that a way to live is right if that's what they want to do. Well, just friends, how arrogant is that? That is arrogant ignorance. Because what we're saying is that there's nothing that we need to learn. There's no outside perspective that we need. We have no blind spots, no biases, no, te- no bad tendencies. Now, before we point the finger at other people who think this way, we are guilty of, of this ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We fool ourselves, kid ourselves all the time. 
to think that we are always right. That other people may, that other people screw up, but when we screw up, you know, there's some good explanation for it. We fool ourselves that when, that because the other side who disagrees with us is so bad, then that means when our side messes up, it's okay. Do not deceive yourselves, friends. You can still deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. You can still deceive yourself. We still have that ability. We still have that capacity. So for the Corinthians, how were they deceived? Paul says, let no one deceive themselves. So how were the Corinthians deceived? So let's just keep going in verse 18. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age. He's speaking of how they were deceived. And in each, almost each word in that statement is purposeful and significant. If anyone That word, anyone, tells us that this problem is not just for some people. Anyone tells us that everyone has to guard against what Paul is saying. This is not just for the elite. This is not just for the people who have time to be spiritual. This applies to anyone and everyone. If anyone among you, among you, those two words tell us that this is a problem that even Christians face. Even Christians in the church face the possibility of deceiving themselves. If anyone among you, we are still able to do this, still able to go astray, still able to sin. And again, among you, these two words remind us that we should not focus so much on the threats that, are out, that come from outside of us to the point that we ignore and forget about the threats that are among us and even in our own hearts. If anyone among you, if anyone among you thinks, we were talking about this uh, in Sunday school a little bit, this is a little subtle jab at the Corinthians. Read it, notice carefully. If anyone among you thinks, This is a dose of reality for them. Paul, no, Paul does not say, if anyone is wise in this age. No, he says, if anyone thinks he is wise in this age, he knows who they were. Chapter 1, verse 26, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So the people Paul's dealing with, to put it in the kids' lingo, he's dealing with a bunch of posers. That's who Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with a bunch of people who were self-proclaimed experts who weren't the elites, but they wanted to be. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, another subtle jab at them, in this age, out of all things to be wise in, this age, according to Paul, is a very dumb thing to be wise in. Because according to him, chapter 2, verse 6, this age is passing away. Trying to be wise in this age is like trying to be an expert on the telegraph because you think it's the next best thing. If you don't know what a telegraph is, you just proved my point. (laughs) Trying to be wise in this age is boasting like the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company and their slogan, limitless paper in a paperless world. You're going to think about that for a second. So how could they deceive themselves? How could the Corinthians deceive themselves? Well, They deceive themselves if they think they are wise in this age. So what should they do? 
if they, are, if they think they are wise in this age. You keep going in verse 18. If they think they are wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. If they want real wisdom, they need to become fools. So look at verse 18 and, and picture like quotes around the word fool there. Let him become a quote-unquote fool. That is a fool according to the world's standards. Not a fool as far as just emptying yourself of all knowledge. We can just look back previous of what Paul has said in the letter so far to see what he means here when we say, let him become a fool. What, what does a fool in the world's eyes look like? A fool in the world's eyes, according to this letter, is one who embraces the cross of Jesus Christ and adopts it as their basis of life. Remember chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life with the cross at its foundation and at its center is foolish to the world. It is not cool to the world. It does not go hand in hand with the world. It is foolish to the world. Oh, we could think of example after example, but just think of, think of it kind of related to the Corinthians case. Because of the cross, we do not assert our own, our own preferences and our own desires, but we are willing to set them aside for the benefit of others. That way of the cross is foolish to the world. It seriously is, because according to the world, especially the world in the West, the highest ideal and good for any individual is to get what you want, is to act on your feelings, it's to go for your dreams no matter what. That's the Disney version. Now, we're not here to kill ambition, but we should recognize that our feelings change, that we are corrupted, that we are tainted, that we are selfish, and we are ignorant. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going on our own. What Paul's saying here is that the first step toward real wisdom is recognizing that you don't have any on your own. That statement's offensive to the world. It offends our pride. But we won't go to God to be filled with his wisdom until we understand and recognize that we are empty of it ourselves. We won't run to Christ until we see who we really are on our own. So in verse 18, Paul tells them, essentially, you guys think you're really smart, but you're not. Leave that junk behind. Why? Why should they do that? This is what he explains in verses 19 to 20. They should leave behind working for the world's approval because of what God thinks of it and where it will lead them. In verses 19 to 20, Paul quotes from the Old Testament from two different places there. Verse 19, this verse comes from the book of Job. Specifically, it comes from Job's friend, Eliphaz. So you, you remember that the book of Job set up, you know, Job uh, enters this intense time of suffering, and then all of his, you know, so-called friends come alongside him to try to console him. And one of those is Eliphaz. And, and so well, a, a part of Eliphaz's advice is, uh, is this phrase, 
catching the wise in their wisdom. This is a picture of a hunter trapping his prey. Now, this quote that it comes from Eliphaz is very ironic, catching the wise in their own wisdom. Because Eliphaz, just like the rest of Job's friends, were impressed with their own wisdom, thought themselves wise in their own eyes, and that's how they advised their friend Job. But as the book goes forward and turns out, God shows up and undoes Eliphaz's so-called wisdom. So that the one who spoke this truth here, catching the wise in their own wisdom, actually lived it out himself. Verse 20, the next verse, comes from Psalm 94. It tells us that, you know, we might deceive ourselves. We might be able to fool ourselves, but we cannot fool God. God can see right through our own schemes and our own ways of living, and he recognizes that they are futile, that they will get us nowhere. So here, we just zoom back to where we've covered in 1 Corinthians so far. And the tables have turned. The tables have turned. Previously in this letter, the wise of the world and the wise around the Corinthians' day thought all of this crucified Messiah talk was gibberish. And here were the Corinthians beginning to buy into that, leaving the cross behind and thinking that they've got more advanced matters to deal with now. They were becoming like the world who's impressed with its own wisdom and deems the cross as foolish. The tables have turned now. Well, Paul Paul says, let me tell you something. You who say you're not impressed with Christ, Christ is not impressed with you. The the direction and the basis for your life is empty, and it will get you nowhere. I remember getting lunch with a friend uh, not too long ago. Uh, It's a friend from high school, actually a friend I grew up with. We went to Panera Bread right down here on Bagley. Um, You could spot me there all the time. Uh, I I don't really like Panera that much, but I end up going there all the time. So sorry if you really like Panera. I hadn't seen this friend for a while. We drifted apart even in high school. That's sort of the classic story. He got involved in the wrong crowd. He got caught up doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And uh, he got in some trouble. Tried to, trying to pull himself out of it. Sought to recover, turn his life around. And so I asked him, I asked him, you know, what do you want out of life? What do you want out of life? What are your goals? He said that, he told me about the particular career that he wanted to pursue, and it seemed like a, a good idea. He said he wanted to get married, married to have a family, and then he said he wanted to become a millionaire by the time he was 30, and then, and then retire by the time he was 35. I, I, I let him finish. And then I paused. I asked, and then what? And then what? I I let him answer. I try to ask him that again. And then what? I try to get him to see that at some point that this is all going to end. We might laugh at the youthful ignorance of, of my friend, but you and me aren't that different. Even as Christians. In our own wisdom, we think that we will finally arrive when we get that certain thing or that certain thing happens to us. We think we will finally arrive. 
Life will be all good, and this will be all that I wanted when I, when I get married, when I get a, a house, a, a solid career, when I'm able to retire, when I can get my politician in office. You fill in the blank. We think that certain things will happen to us, and then we will finally arrive. I'll fill in the blank myself. I'll, I'll reflect here. If only I preach great and insightful enough sermons that more and more people want to hear, then I'll arrive. If only more people come so that we can do more unique ministries in the community, then I'll arrive. If only I publish a book or or learn enough so that people recognize and validate my giftedness and my vocation, then I'll arrive. Friends, what happens when we get what we want? And we can be grateful, but we'll soon find out that arrival looks a lot different than what we thought it was. We can't hang on to any of this. We can't. We will be forgotten a very short time after we die. Have you thought of that? Just ask, do you know the names of your great-grandparents? I maybe know one or two of them. Your great-grandparents, that's just a couple generations. We will be forgotten very soon after we die. So what's the point of all this effort, of all this worry? We need a dose of reality, a bite of humble pie. That's why verses, these verses in 1 Corinthians are here. That's why verses like James 4, verse 14 are in the Bible. Just what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone. That's why Ecclesiastes 1.14 is in the Bible. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Oh, we deceive ourselves. All the stuff we clamor after that fuels our discontent, our worry and anxiety, it's just not what it's cracked up to be. It might be good, but it's not ultimate. The Corinthians needed to know the truth about the worldly mindset that they had, the worldly approval that they sought after. And we need to know that truth too. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. But if we just left it here, we just left it right here, and this is where we ended the sermon, we would become cynical about the world. We wouldn't be Christians, though. So that's why we go into our second point, the truth about what God has done for us. Remember the center command of this paragraph. The main difference Paul wants to produce in them is to stop boasting in people. Verse 21 So we said the first step toward healing for the Corinthian church was for them to see that what they went after wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. The second step toward healing that church was for them to recognize what they already had. It was for them to recognize how much they missed out on by focusing on what they focused on. The truth was that through Christ's finished work on the cross for them in their place, God, God, had made them his own. And everything was theirs and to their benefit. So let's see Paul flesh out the truth about what God has done for us in the second half of verse 21 on through verse 23. He says, stop boasting in people because all things are yours. 
You know, they thought a certain teacher would give them the place in the world that they finally wanted. But hold on a second, Paul says. You're going to get hung up on a human teacher when you have all things? That's what you're going to do? Yeah, imagine having a lifetime of free meals at the highest-end restaurant in Cleveland. You know, one of those where they actually serve food that people like, and one of those where they actually give you enough food so that you're full. Imagine having a lifetime of meals at that place. Then you go the first time, second time, third time, again and again, and all you ever order are saltine crackers. Imagine that. And it, it, it gets even better. You talk to your friends about this prize that you just won. And you don't tell them about this whole restaurant and, and, and all the food that you've experienced. You know what you, know what you tell them? Hey, you know, I, I eat the best saltine crackers. Oh, okay. I mean, I like a good saltine cracker if the mood strikes. But really? Look at all else that you have. Paul takes an aside. This is what he's doing with the Corinthians. You're going to get hung up on these teachers. Look at all else that you have. You have all things. Verse 22, he lays out what all things includes, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Now, by starting with the teachers, he's directly addressing their slogans that he's quoted a couple of times in this letter so far. You may remember those. He's quoted earlier in chapter 3 and back in chapter 1, these slogans of, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Those slogans could also be translated, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. What Paul's saying here is like, no, guys, that's not true. You know, in fact, the opposite is true. Paul, Apollos, Cephas belong to you. They're not masters. They're servants. They're gifts from God for your benefit. Why focus on one and miss out on the others? They're all for your good. But then Paul expands this list of what's included under all things. It's not just teachers, but they have the world, life, death, the present, the future. Now, the surface of what Paul means here might seem murky. But think of this list in light of verses 18 to 20, what we covered in the first point. Think of this list and ask, where do we get ourselves when we try to handle all of these realities on our own? Where do we get ourselves when we try to handle all of these realities on our own so-called wisdom? Not very far. Theologian Don Carson's helpful here. He's, the world squeezes us into its mold. It demands so much attention and allegiance that we seldom devote much of our thought and passion to the world to come. This present life clamors to be treated as if it were worth of ultimate, worthy of ultimate respect. Remember, we said this present life is just but a mist, a vapor. Death hovers over us, casting its long shadow and constrains us all of our lives in more ways than we know. It does this to the point that there is a constant urgency about the present. Just think of it. We are prisoners of the moment. 
I wrote in the, in the newsletter a few weeks ago, just, just a little exercise. Do you remember what was in the news three weeks ago? Man, I don't. We are prisoners of the moment, caught up in all that's going on, always running to get stuff done. And think of how we handle the future on our own, on our own wisdom. At best, uncertain about it, or at best, at least ignorantly too certain of it, and at worst, fearful of it. So can we handle all of these realities on our own, whether the world, the present life, death, the present or the future? Of course not. Y'all, why do you think we distract ourselves so much? Seriously. Why do you think we avoid anything real? Why we have such a hard time talking about it? Why do you think we immerse ourselves in work, in leisure, in scrolling, Because we know, I think deep down, we can't handle any real stuff on our own. That we avoid these topics shows how much we are enslaved to them. When we try to get the chains off, we realize that we can't. But now, Paul says, all these things are ours. This world becomes a gateway to the next and we will inherit it when God makes it new. We no longer have to squeeze out of this present life everything that we want. Instead, we can realize its limits, enjoy God and his gifts, and anticipate the life to come. Death no longer holds sway over us. The present and all that's going on around us cannot devour us. We no longer fear the future. We actually embrace the future. How? How, can, how did this switch happen? I said, it can't be because of something about us. Like we said, on our own, we can't handle any of these realities. Something must have changed. Someone must have freed us from all of this. Someone must have conquered all of this. According to verse 23, all things are ours because we are Christ's. We are united to him by faith. Jesus is our substitute, our champion. Everything that he has achieved is credited to us. You know, the the modern analogy that's often used is like a defense attorney. Like a defense attorney, that attorney represents you. The attorney's victory is your victory. The attorney's defeat is your defeat. And the unique part about Jesus' being an attorney is that the way he achieves victory is by taking our guilty sentence. (laughs) Because we are united to Jesus, we are, the Bible calls, co-heirs with him. The one who has all things under his feet. All things are ours because we are Christ's. And that last phrase of this passage, all things are ours because we are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, it's, uh, you know, I kind of got frustrated with Paul. I was like, Paul, we were, we were doing so well, man. We were doing so well. It was so clear. And then Christ is God's. What does this mean? Well, at first blush, this seems to indicate that Christ is somehow less than God. 
But just keep in mind the rest of the Bible and even what Paul writes. Jesus himself claims to be equal with the Father existing from eternity past. Paul, even in another one of his letters, calls Jesus our God and Savior. So Paul's not saying Jesus is somehow less than God. This is a statement not about who Jesus is, but about what Jesus does. Jesus is God's chosen Christ. God's chosen Messiah, Savior. And if that is the case, then because of Jesus' work on the cross, the Corinthians did not belong to certain church leaders. They belonged to God because of Christ's work in their place. So the big truth is that through Christ, God has made us his own. We belong to him. And that changes everything. Friends, have we really grasped this? that we are his, that we belong to him, that we really are safe, that we really are secure. If we really grasp that truly nothing can touch us in the ultimate sense, nothing. All the stuff that bothers you, all of the stuff that nags you, that discourages you, the stuff that you don't have but want, the stuff that you have but don't want, your life, your eternity does not bank on any of that. It banks on what Christ has already done. All things are yours. Oh, no, the truth is we haven't grasped this. We are restless, busy, distracted, discontent, grumbling, worn out. But friends, we can live with the humble, grateful, and joyful satisfaction that because of Jesus, we have everything. There's no need for discontent. There's no need to prove ourselves anymore. There's no need to bank our lives on whether or not we achieve everything that we want. Jesus has made us his own. That's it. It's already done. You know, and Paul is so pastoral here. He really he's, He has harsh words for them, for them on occasion when they, he needs to be sharp and wake them up. He's so pastoral, though, here. He doesn't just point out their sin. He points to what's better. He doesn't just say, saltine crackers? Really? That's what you guys focus on? You guys are a bunch of idiots. That's not Paul's MO. That's not what he does. No. Paul takes them to the restaurant again. He orders a sampler from the menu. Guys, eat this. This is so much better. This is what you already have. Don't get caught up on the saltine crackers. Jesus, friends, takes those who have given our lives to the hopeless and meaningless mire of living for ourselves. He makes us his own, and he gives us everything. But even before we are his, and even after we belong to Jesus, we would rather play in that mire of living for ourselves than to sit at his feast. As C.S. Lewis so famously wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, 
when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. To those here who still live basically how you want to live, who still live according to your own wisdom, do you see that this morning, just in light of those realities Paul talks about, the world, life, death, present, future, that you can't handle those on your own, no matter how wise you are. So why play in the mud when you can eat at the feast? Come to the crucified Savior, crucified and risen Savior with the empty hands of faith and say to him, Jesus, I have not lived how you want me to live. I haven't. And I can see that because of that, I am a mess. But you died for me. You took my place. And I can become your mess. And because of you, I can really start to live how you want me to live. Living for you, resting in you, not me. Y'all, Christians, we still need the truth that Paul's talking about here. We still need this truth about what God has done for us in Christ, how he has made us his own and given us everything. The Corinthians still needed this truth. Competitive Christians like them need this truth. Why should having a certain minister matter when they have Jesus? Paul asks them. If they realize all that they had already, they would see that they don't need to make church all about them. They have everything they need in Jesus that keeps them humble, grateful, loving, content. Christians still need this. Consumeristic Christians still need the truth about what God has done for us in Christ, how he has made, how he has made us his own and given us everything. Consumeristic Christians still need this. You know, we would rather routinely accumulate more and more stuff, information, entertainment, and experiences than look at what we already have. Namely, what we already have in Jesus. Redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses. Adoption as sons. The blazing glory that awaits us in the future. Seeing God face to face. Cranky Christians still need the truth about what God has done for us in Christ. How he has made us his own. How he's given us everything. Cranky Christians still need this. We would rather pick fights, show that we're right, and complain about what the world has come to then be hopeful and point others and ourselves to the one who has come into the world. How Jesus died, rose again, and is coming back to make all things new. Complacent Christians still need this truth. How God has made us his own through Christ. He's given us everything. We are stunted in our growth. We stagnate turn the wheels. We're bored, dull, when we have a feast in front of us and we need to taste again. Friends, crushed Christians 
still need the truth about what God has done for us in Christ, how he has made us his own through Jesus' death and resurrection, and how he has given us all things that now we are co-heirs. Crushed Christians need this. People we love hurt us. We lose our jobs. We get sick. We grow weary. We become sad. Friends, even in those states, we belong to Jesus even in those ones. We can join Paul in his next letter to the Corinthians and say that we might be afflicted on every side, but we are not truly crushed. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We anchor ourselves in the love of God displayed at the cross and say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what I say now is that we need, we need a revival of the Spirit of God to awaken us distracted and discontented Christians like those in Corinth. Let's cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, we are done with mediocre Christianity. Just done with it. Take us to the feast. Show us again what we already have because of Jesus And give us a renewed rest, a renewed vitality, a renewed hope, a renewed gratitude so that we can run through the Bedford Falls of this world, awakened from our selfish slumber to sing that we have Jesus and Jesus has us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a, what a sweet truth. We are yours and you are ours. What, what need is there for this, this endless discontent, this endless striving? What need is there for it? What need is there is to, to vie for position and ambition. Oh, God, correct our perspective and show us what we already have so that we may rest and rejoice and embrace the cross. That is our wisdom, not ourselves. So Lord, give fruit from your word in the lives as as we head out to where we go this week. Shine through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.